Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In the final episode of season one of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. Season one? We talk about the movie, The End of Evangelion, and how it differs from the ending of the TV series. There is truly nothing left to spoil. Everything's on the table. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 15. Begin the ritual. The End of Evangelion. We open with Asuka in her hospital bed. Shinji's visiting her. He begs her for help, but she's catatonic. When he tries to pull her closer to him, her blouse falls open. You wanted fan service, here you go. He looks at her breasts and masturbates into his hand, looks at his cum shot, and then calls himself pathetic. Buckle up, this is the end of Evangelion. Episode 25, Air. The deck crew are in HQ, which has been locked down. Nobody's telling them what's going on, but Misato knows, just as Kaji predicted, that they're in deep shit. Zele are interrogating Gendo and Fyutsuki one final time. Since the Spear of Longinus isn't inhibiting Lilith's growth, she can't be controlled and will no longer be a good vessel for mankind to unite inside of through instrumentality. Instead, they want Unit 1, even if it means effectively ending all life to achieve this goal. Gendo won't let them have it. So Zele will come and take it. That night, Ray wakes up alone breaks Gendo's glasses, and leaves. The next morning, Masato is trying to hack into the Magi when Zele cuts HQ off and begins hacking into the Magi themselves with five Magi copies of their own from around the globe. In response, Ritsuko is released from her detainment to activate the Magi's defense countermeasures. Uh, Hyuga informs Masato that Nerve's license to operate above the law has been revoked. Zele's returned authority to the Japanese government. Ritsuko manages to shore up the Magi uh, with a code 666 firewall, but Zele aren't about to back down. They call on the Japanese military to strike Nerve HQ. Misato orders Shinji and Asuka to be loaded into the Evangelions before Zele's commandos can execute them. Again, the safest place that they could possibly be is in an entry plug, but nobody knows where Rei is. Ray has snuck into Terminal Dogma and is submerging herself in the LCL containers. Asuka is successfully deployed, even though she can't sync with Unit 2, so they're both immobile. Shinji, on the other hand, is wallowing in self-pity in an isolated corner of HQ, cut off from rescue. Gendo puts Fiyutsuki in charge, while the JSDF easily infiltrates HQ. Masato orders Bakalite pumped into Nerve HQ to slow the enemy's advance and opts to get Shinji herself, while the bridge crew arm themselves. Their anti-terrorism budget has been cut earlier. Uh, it's as if Zele had been planning this the whole time. Bumper. Love is destructive. Ray is naked, looking at the remaining body parts of her backups floating in their containers when Gendo finds her and tells her that, quote, the promised time has come. 
three commandos locate Shinji and are about to execute him when Misato saves his ass. Shinji, however, is nearly as incapacitated as Asuka is. He's retreating into his own psyche. Misato implores him to stand up and fight for his life. Zele aren't done yet. They drop an N2 mine onto the remains of Tokyo 3, destroying it and exposing the geo front to the air, which they then carpet bomb. Misato takes Shinji into Terminal Dogma and finally explains the events that precipitated the show as follows. The second impact was caused by Gehiren scientists trying to revert Adam to his embryonic state before he could awaken and summon the subsequent angels. Now Zele want to do the same to mankind, but using an Ava, which they would control, instead of an angel. Since mankind are the spawn of Lilith, Adam in his full power would have wiped mankind out. In that sense, humanity is the 18th angel and therefore Nerve's final opponent. To stop the third impact, Shinji will need to take out the Evangelions that Zele controls using Unit 1. Trouble is, it's going to be really fucking hard for them to get to Unit 1. And as for Unit 2, Asuka's in it at the very bottom of the subterranean lake in the Geofront, non-responsive. Zele attack Unit 2 with depth charges, which shake Asuka out of her catatonic state. She starts repeating over and over again that she doesn't want to die. Inside the entry plug, faintly, she hears her mother's voice. Her mother won't let her die. Choirs erupt, and Unit 2 awakens with a cross blast. Asuka has experienced a breakthrough, and finally has connected with the part of her mother in the Evangelion that always loved her. She's back at full power. A fully actualized Asuka, in full sync with her Evangelion, dismantles the military forces attacking Nerve. The military uh, does manage to sever the Ava's umbilical cord, but that doesn't stop Asuka from annihilating them. Zele are down, but not out. Keel says he will fight evil with evil, and calls in the long-awaited mass-produced Ava's, all nine of them. Each of the mass-produced Avas has wings, as well as a large bladed weapon, and they're all piloted by dummy plugs. They operate on what appears to be pure animalistic bloodlust, and since they have S2 drives, they will never run out of power. Asuka fights tooth and nail against Zele's Avas, and for a while, does a pretty good job, all things considered. At the same time, Misato is still doing her best to get Shinji to Unit 1, and in so doing, takes a bullet for him. In a heartfelt goodbye, she puts him on an elevator to the Unit 1 launch bay and tries her best to give him a pep talk, but Shinji's still in the depths of self-hatred. Just like in Shinji's visions from the series, Misato bears her soul to him and urges him to get the closure he needs and deserves. She hands him her St. George's cross necklace and gives him a grown-up kiss. She promises to, quote, do the rest with him when he comes back alive and then tosses him into the elevator. Shinji makes it to Unit 1, but it's covered in Bakelite. He can't even enter it to save Asuka. Right after, Misato bleeds out. As she's dying, she asks Kaji, as if from afar, if she did the right thing. Gendo, meanwhile, has taken Rei into Lilith's chamber, where Ritsuko's waiting. Ritsuko pulls a gun on him and hits a remote switch in her pocket, ordering the Magi to self-destruct. 
But Caspar, the third Magi, refuses. Even in death, her mother chose Gendo over her own daughter. Right after that, Gendo shoots Ritsko. Asuka, meanwhile, has nearly annihilated the mass-produced Avas and has the last one's core in the palm of her hand when one of them throws its bladed weapon at her. Their standard armaments, it turns out, are copies of the Spear of Longinus. The imitation spear pierces Unit 2's head just as her power runs out. The enemy Evangelians rise up even though they've been butchered and descend on the incapacitated Unit 2 like a flock of vultures. They literally eat it. Asuka, determined, manages to activate Unit 2 in berserker mode, just like Shinji did against Zeruel. The remaining Avas, though, hurl all their spears into her. She's utterly defeated. Just then, Unit 1 self-activates with its own cross-blast and atom-like wings. Title card. The End of Evangelion. Gendo removes his glove and shows Rei the atom embryo in his palm. Gendo implores her to let him fuse with her and unite all of mankind so he can be with Yui again. He presses the atom palm into her breast and it fuses with Rei's body. Bumper, episode 26. I'll give my true love to you. Unit 1 summons the Spear of Longinus back from the moon and Zele begin their counterplan to Gendo's instrumentality, using the mass-produced Avas to generate anti-AT fields and begin third impact. In Terminal Dogma, Ray rejects Gendo, absorbing his arm and Adam in the process to regenerate her body. She tells him she is not his doll and then returns to Lilith's body without him. Lilith pulls itself off of the cross, and assumes its true form, a giant phantasmic ray. She rises through the command bridge and meets Shinji in the upper atmosphere. The ritual continues until the Spear of Longinus fuses with Unit 1, and it becomes a giant crucifix-shaped tree. Futsuki explains that now that Unit 1 possesses both the angel's fruit of life and mankind's fruit of knowledge, it's become, quote-unquote, the tree of life an entity tantamount to God, and now the fate of mankind rests in Shinji's hands. Shinji recalls or hallucinates himself as a child left alone in a sandbox. He was playing with two girls, but they leave him there. One of those girls may or may not be a doll. And alone in the sandbox, he makes a pyramid, just like Nerve HQ, and then stomps it apart. After hesitating... He just tries to make the pyramid all over again. Shinji then warps to another vision. He's seeing Misato having sex with Kaji, just like he did in episode 25 of the series, although it's much more explicit this time, and then finds himself on the train of thought with the women in his life. Asuka interrogates his inability to be honest uh, about his sexual and romantic feelings for her. He talks about how vague hers and others' feelings for him are. And then he finds himself in Misato's kitchen with Asuka. He tries to tell her that he loves her, and then Asuka says he never really cared about her or any of the, of the women in his life. He's just using them to hide from his own loneliness. Shinji begs her for help, but she says no. So in a very upsetting scene, he strangles her. 
Shinji then decides if no one will help him, then they don't deserve to live. With that, Lilith emerges from the planet and spreads her anti-AT field over the Earth. Visions of Rei appear to the remaining characters and then take on the form of the people they most care about. When the living humans touch their individual Rei visions, they melt into LCL. In Terminal Dogma, Gendo finds himself finally face-to-face with Yui. He says he always knew that he would hurt Shinji, and that's why he treated Shinji the way he did. From his way of thinking, leaving Shinji alone was the best thing for him. But Yui and Koru and Rei, who all appear there, agree. Gendo was really just scared of other people. Instead of returning him to a primordial state, uh, Lilith sends a vision of Unit 1 to bite him in half. Above the Earth, Lilith collects the souls of mankind and returns them all to the Chamber of Guff. The film retreats into psychedelia and eventually live-action footage of people in a theater. A title card asks if it feels good, if this feels good. And Ray and Shinji have a conversation, uh, basically, that imply that Ray says Shinji's been using a fantasy about a world without people to hide from reality. He can only find happiness after he faces reality. Back in animation, Lilith's neck is cut open and she bleeds to death over the world. Shinji awakens, fused with Ray in an ocean of LCL. This is the world he wished for, with everyone fused into one without selfhood. But Shinji's still holding Masato's cross. He tells Rei he was wrong. He'd rather have a world with people in it. She says his fear of others will come back, but he tells her that's okay, and thanks her for what she's done. Unit 1 reemerges from Lilith's body and instrumentality is reversed. Yui's soul inside a petrified Unit 1 floats away into space. Bumper. One more final. I need you. Shinji awakens in the aftermath of Third Impact on the shores of an ocean of blood. He's next to Asuka, looking up at the stars and an orbiting ring of Lilith's sprayed blood. He goes to Asuka and nearly strangles her, but stops when she caresses his face. He begins to cry. Asuka calls him disgusting. The end. Congratulations! We did it! We did it again! Back again to ruin your day. So this is it. This is how it... It's all supposed to end. This is the real ending of the story. For everyone that thought episodes 25 and 26 were too abstract, now you get your ending. Now you know what really happened. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> I did. I did. I did too. It's good. It's a good movie. It's a really good movie. <laughs> the first half of it's a good movie. <laughs> Let, let's, okay, Let, hold on. Much to discuss. Much to discuss. Where do we want to start? I'm just going to say this. There is something in this, in this movie that, that does display at all times Anno having a complete mastery of all the things he developed in the course of the series. The flawless action sequences, 
to an extent the video essay format, although I don't think that works so quite so well here for reasons I think we're going to get into. And especially like this disturbing occult body horror imagery that just hijacks the last third of the film. Like the entire last third of the film is this huge ritual sequence. And, and like, it's disturbing. I, I don't like it. Like it, it's, it doesn't feel pleasurable to watch and it sticks with me. So like it's it's sort of been like it's sort of been like floating in my head since I rewatched it. And that's the way this movie made me feel the first time, too. So I guess that's a point in its favor. Yes. I, I one thing that is difficult to get across in the type of recaps that we do at the beginning of our episodes is and I it's difficult to put into words exactly how fucked up this movie feels especially the 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 final third that you're describing where things get real cuckoo bananas but even from the jump basically this is this is ava with the gloves taken off uh no pun intended with gendo and the adam hand but um, why not i thought it was a good pun why are you stopping yourself I, lean in I baby i didn't realize i was making it until i made it that's really what i mean by with the gloves off grabbing yes. your tit trying to fuse with your body yes yeah, yeah that's it that's the movie like i i jokingly described it to joseph the last time we talked as being like smoke the whole pack of ava you know <laughs> um it is it is brutal the scenes of violence especially because i think the movie makes a clear point that once this violence that's implicit and you know shown in most of the show it feels different when it's human against human and you're watching people get gunned down there's this one moment that i think i i think of as kind of being like the emblematic moment of the movie in terms of it's like it's just this perfect representation of the movie's like attitude which is the jsdf have a flamethrower are shooting the flamethrower into a room. They hear a bunch of people scream. There's a brief pause, and then they do it again. <laughs> like, that's the entire attitude of this movie. Like, hit him with the flamethrower. Hit him with the flamethrower again. <laughs> like, This movie has a bad attitude. It is, it is a spiteful, ugly, contemptful film. And those are, in some ways, in to its credit, and in other ways, to its detriment. But... Beyond all that, it's just it's it looks incredible. It is so beautiful uh, to look at. It's so well animated. You can actually see why people would, after watching this, think like, "Oh, there must have been budgetary failures for the show if this is what they planned to do." Even though we've discussed at length why that's you know a a, a cop out that fans use to talk about the end of the uh, the actual show. When you give Gynax and Anno the money they can deliver really really incredible stuff the action sequences are beautifully illustrated and thought out and composed the whole fight scene with Asuka and the mass-produced Avas is like crystal clear action storytelling like you always know the clock's ticking how many Avas are left what's what the fight is it's choreographed in a really cool way and then of course the whole ending sequence is just no holds barred like pure imaginative body horror you know, it's it's they really let themselves go there and in a really incredible way. Um, I think it's worth noting that. So credit to Gynax, certainly. However, and here's here's a true story. A lot of the animation for the Ava series was actually contracted out. And that's also sort of true for End of Evangelion. 
a company called Production IG did most of the animation under Anno's supervision and with the cooperation of Gainax did most of the animation here. And um, it's pretty interesting that like production, production IG for like a decade after this, maybe more is like the premier animation studio for, for high concept Japanese anime. We should talk about how this film fits into the legacy of high concept anime films this is not even though this is a movie that is directly tied to the history of evangelion and is a part of the evangelion story its existence as a standalone film also puts it in conversation with a bunch of other movies that i think you're probably a bit more qualified to talk about do you want to briefly give some context for the state of the anime standalone film in 1997 when this movie came out for sure this is probably difficult for people to imagine right now but during the 90s, anime was in America was mostly seen as an art house film genre. And several of these sort of high concept, philosophically minded animated movies were like minor hits in America and big hits in Europe and big hits in Japan. That sort of starts with Akira. I mean, to this day, I think Akira is maybe like the most acclaimed single piece of Japanese animation that exists, probably. Even though the manga is better, but we can talk about that at a different day. <laughs> so many thoughts. Yeah, I mean... It, th I'm just trolling you. Keep going. Akira looks cool. Akira looks bonkers and is an incomplete version of the anime, like by admission, but of, of the manga, but whatever. I think maybe the high watermark might be Ghost in the Shell, which comes out in 1995, also based on a manga. And Ghost in the Shell is like being made while they're making Evangelion. And similar to Evangelion has like just overt references to philosophy and, and cutting edge science fiction. And so I think it makes after the success of Evangelion and Ghost in the Shell in the same year, it was probably a pretty easy pitch for like Anno to go to his investors and be like, maybe make a movie. And they're like, well, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Do it again. Can there be action figures for this one too? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can have all sorts of action figures and shit. So it, then you get end of, end of Evangelion. I don't think this movie is quite as good as ghost in the shell personally, but I, I like it more than Akira. And then the art continues. I know that Ian's a big fan of the director, Satoshi Kon. Um, who has a run of great films after this. Uh, Perfect Blue, it, it comes out the same summer. I, I don't know if it's the same summer, but the same year, definitely. Same year. Yeah, Perfect Blue, which like is... That's, this, that movie trumps all of these, in my opinion. That, this is, that's an, another conversation. Um, it was but... also more or less remade as Black Swan. It's like an, it, it's like an uncredited remake. <laughs> don't get me started after like two drinks on that. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can go. <laughs> Satoshi Kon keeps doing, keeps doing great stuff. He keeps doing, he does Millennium Actress. He does Tokyo Godfathers. These are great movies. And then I, I think maybe this, like the golden age of the anime film sort of reaches its end when Miyazaki does Spirited Away and Spirited Away crossovers with Disney's help in, in the United States. I think that like, that's like an era shift. Because, like, Miyazaki and Anno have, like, related careers. They're mentor and student. But Miyazaki was doing his own thing at this time. Like, Spirited Away is the first one of his movies that seems, in a way, with the way it uses imagery and 
body horror and spiritualism does seem like that movie is is him responding to his student. Yeah, I, I, and you can tell that while definitely cool and exciting and interesting movies have been made since this this particular run has a certain sci-fi psych thriller bent to it that is also kind of in line with what's happening in American cinema near the end of the of the century I guess you know you have a run of films like the sort of like dorm movie poster body of work that's coming out around that same time you know your fight clubs mementos requiem for a dream which also I think we've actually mentioned this on the podcast before also references perfect blue but and of course the matrix which is openly drawing from all of these sources that we're talking about whether it be akira ghost in the shell or evangelion itself you've pointed out also that old boy uh, which is adapted from a manga um, the Korean film Old Boy, uh, which was eventually remade as a not very good American film. Um, Unfortunately, not very good at all. Yeah, it's a shame. It's got it's got good people in it. And it's directed by Spike Lee, so it's well made. It's just a bad movie, you know. But even that, I think you can sort of see that there's this kind of like reaction to 90s anime that kind of s- ripples out into a bunch of different genres. And this is the the Evangelion contribution to that lineage is this film i think there's probably some people where like end of evangelion is their first exposure to to evangelion like and to those people like that's dope because like you get you get to start with the oscar versus the mass produced ava's fight scene that's cool but like it also sort of does the story a, a disservice i think yes uh especially because while this is ostensibly finishing off the story that started in the TV show, it's also very much a movie made in response to the culture that grew around the TV show and a response to the the fandom of Ava and what exactly being a big fan of something means. And that's where a lot of the, the contempt and spite that we describe with this movie comes in. That's where you get a lot of the really poisonous and uh, overkill elements of uh, of the show, uh, of the movie, rather. Well, now we should talk about the death threats, because this is like a big, like the death threats are a big part of the Evangelion narrative, and like it's not until end of Evangelion that like they actually get, get referenced, right? So there's some like, in the movie, there's some like blink and you'll miss it shots of hate mail that Hideki Anno got, and sort of the most famous one, is, there's also like a, a shot of like the front of Gynax's office building that's been like spray painted. It's it, I think it's kind of funny. Like, I bet they like were walking outside with the camera like, this is great. This yes. is fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> get all of it. The most famous one of those of those hate mails is an email that just says, Ano shit over and over again, which is just Ano die over and over again. And, and apocryphally, I haven't seen any proof of this in English, but like the story goes, he also got like a letter at one point in time with a razor blade in it. Well, for context, it's important to note when this happens in the movie, like when all of the, these images of hate mail are popping up, it's right around the same time that you get this like montage of children's drawings of traumatic. It's like children who have experienced childhood trauma, drawing what they experienced in some way or responding to it. And this is all kind of while Shinji is strangling Asuka. It's right at the start of the instrumentality sequence, basically. So 
for context for when the when these images are included, which I think will explain maybe a bit of how and why they're included, if that makes sense. It's interesting to note that like people get the chronology of this wrong most of the time. To the best of my research, Anno received those letters after Death and Rebirth came out, not after the series ended. Also, a lot of those letters, you can find translations of them all on the internet. People have freeze-framed them and translated them. A lot of the letters are, are actually fan mail. Like, there's there's the one that's, like, telling him to kill himself over and over again. But there's a lot that were, like, like... I like reconnected. I think someone says they like reconnected with their parents after seeing it or like they watched death and rebirth and felt like they had a religious experience. So it's, it's the narrative as always is not as cut and dry as the rumors and fan narrative make it out to be. To me, that suggests that it's not just that this is a, this, this is a movie about desire of and recognition and having those, having those things run up against the, the fundamental difficulty of being seen and recognized by another person and what a la- uh, a perception of a lack of recognition can do to your psyche. Or at least that is what Shinji's plot line in the movie is. You know, this is basically black pilled Shinji. This is the, the version of him that we see refuted at the end of episode 26 when it's established. If you would continue to be the person that you were, you would instrumentality is the only thing that could happen. This end of the world is the only way this story could have ended. We are now seeing how low he would have to sink for that to be true. And it is a tough hang (laughs) right off the bat. The, the Oscar, the comatose Oscar sequence. Uh, Holy crap. This is a fucked up piece of film. It's also directly drawing on other images from the TV show. It's, it's like a weird mirror version of in the first episode when Shinji comes across, like sees Ray in the bandages before he gets into the Evangelion for the first time. Right down. So it's in that one, it's him in the original show. It's him seeing someone who's hurt and deciding that he has to do something to help that person, which is to prevent them from being hurt further. And he, you know, re- runs to, to help her and then has blood on his hand, right? Right. In this, it's him desperately trying to get help from someone who cannot help him. And in lieu of that, objectifies her. And instead, we have the mirrored shot of the hand in the same exact, it's like the same frame as in episode one, but instead of blood, it's his cum. And it's... It's also, up. like, animated. Like, that's, like, something that, like, they want you to appreciate. Like, the jism drips. <laughs> like, he, someone was tasked, like, sitting there be like, all right, I need it to, like, gob off the thumb a little bit. You gotta love having that job. But it's also, I think, that scene sets up, like, a few things that I are instrumental to my framing of this film. So, for one, in the series, and especially in the end of the series, I think... Ano sees himself in Shinji. I don't get that in End of Evangelion. I think he sees himself in Asuka. And I, I, my reading of that scene is sort of him being like, like, oh my God, look, I gave you this like traumatic, wonderful, like mythological piece of art. And like your response to it is, I want to see Asuka's tits. And he's like, okay, you want it. You'll get it. And this is what I think of you for wanting that. 
and I'm going to start the movie just like showing you how much I fucking hate you. Shinji is contemptible in this movie. He's, he's not a good person and he does not behave like a good person. He doesn't really make decisions even. He's the lowest of the low as he just, as he self describes at the beginning of the movie. He has given up on the ability to have agency and this puts everyone else in a terrible position. Masato dies because of his lack of care for himself and therefore his lack of care for others. The movie goes to great lengths to to highlight this because in a crucial sequence, that sequence where Gendo is dying as instrumentality is happening, he's confronted by you know these apparitions of Yui and Kaoru and Rei. And the way he describes his behavior and his motivations are identical to how Shinji describes his motivations and perspective in this movie. He says, I don't believe that I could be loved. And therefore, I pushed everyone else away because I thought that that was what would be best for them. And so Gendo's whole arc is essentially a man who hates himself so severely that he would bring on the end of the world, that he would concoct this entire plan to destroy the world so he can be, uh, you know, run into the arms of his now dead wife. How is that any different than what Shinji is doing in this movie? Hating the world so much and hating himself so much that he demands that the world be returned into the womb of Lilith, you know? I think that the, the end of Ava is being very deliberate in showing us that Shinji is now becoming, Shinji, the character that we have gained this empathy for over the course of the series, is no different than the man that we spent the entire series hating. Yeah. And the coda, the most upsetting scenes in the movie to me are when you first watch the movie, you think the end of the of the Asuka fight scene is the most upsetting thing that Ava has in it. It's definitely visually the most upsetting. Like we should not skimp over how horrifying it is to watch the unit two get torn to shreds by the mass produced Ava's. It is. It's really gross. Let's let's come back. To the, to the Unit 2 mass-produced Ava fight scene. Let's come back to it. Because it, you could do a whole episode just on, on that. Or at least I could. But end of the movie. It, it's weird because the movie does sort of like a fake-out. Like, it almost... You get this, like, thing where, like, Shinji's in the sea of LCL with Rei and his mom. And he looks at Misato's cross. And he's like, no, I'm gonna be okay. Undo it. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Let's not do this. And like at multiple times during like the instrumentality Armageddon sequence of people being turned into primordial fucking slime, Ray tells him, we can stop. I don't got to do this. She's like, I cannot do this if you want. And he's like, nope, keep going. Fuck him. And then he gets to a point where he's like, no, I'm wrong. Okay. And and he, he, so he wakes up on the shores of blood next to Asuka and you think, okay, up until that point, I can see it as like, this is a good ending for this show of, of the story being like, well, nearly fucked the world up totally, but she's here. I'm here. We're alive. We're going to move forward. It's going to be okay. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay. And the first thing he does is try to fucking kill her. Also, she's wearing, I don't know if you noticed, all the same bandages Ray was in episode one. 
they're slightly different um, because they're related to the injuries that she suffers during that fight scene where but, her but they're meant is, to echo like they're, they're in, yes it's it's definitely yeah. there's there's echoings but the eye patch is a bit different it's yes it's i think that it's a a deliberate echo but it also is justified within the plot it's not just a reference it's sure you know i i didn't mean to say that she's become some sort of what i'm trying to say is that's when she calls him disgusting i think that's Anno calling his fans disgusting and like the end of like the end of Evangelion, the movie is like him being Oscar tossing their hair when they're hating him. And I think like, I think what he's trying to say is like, you're Gendo. You're my dad. You've become everything I hate. Look at yourselves. I, I, I tried to give you like the occult end of the world to fulfill your deepest wishes. And you just became a terrible person anyway. Fuck right. you. It's so another crucial difference is the way the experience that happens essentially like outside of the world of the show, you know, in episode 26, at least in, in my personal interpretation of it, most of it happens outside of the show, but with the characters viewing the, the behavior of the show and learning a lesson from it. In this, we are quite literally outside of the world of the show because it leaves animation entirely and goes into this live action sequence where what I think we can safely presume is either literal footage of the audience in the theaters watching Death and Rebirth, or is at least heavily implied to be the audience of Death and Rebirth. We see shots of people in cosplay, you know, of the characters in Evangelion. We, and it's, you know, it has this, is it good? Was it good? Title card like over all of it. Exactly. Like, is this what you wanted? You know, like... This is it. This is what you asked for, isn't it? You wanted the end of the world. You wanted to see all of this. You wanted to see the pain and suffering that these characters caused each other. And over this this conversation about like, oh, you've created this fake world to retreat into, it's kind of pointed. It's basically saying that as Shinji created this fake consciousness, this fake understanding of the world where he believed that everyone hated him and that no one loved him and that nothing he would do mattered, just as that is a fake world that you can retreat into, the fandom has essentially retreated from the real world and retreated into fandom, into an appreciation of a show as a way to avoid facing the exact issues the show is talking about. At least that's my interpretation of what's going on. But it's not solely what the movie is doing. So I would like to talk about the substance of the movie as its own movie and not just as a meta commentary, unless you have anything further to add about that, that particular angle on it. No, I think that about I think that about covers it. It blurs the line between meta and narrative so much that like it's sort of unavoidable. But the movie presents a different Shinji than the last two episodes do in a way that I think is confusing and and in in hinders the storytelling a little bit. I think I I grow to like Shinji in the series and I find the Shinji and end of Evangelion. I, I hate him. Where, where's the guy who's like willing to let Bardriel choke him the fuck out and be like, I'm not going to kill an innocent person. Like that was like narratively speaking, he's making like a mistake, but as like a moral character choice, he's right. 
there where he like he's he's making the argument he's he's making these like good arguments against the brutality and authoritativeness of his father he's like i'm not going to become you and so to see him like just so easily corrupted kind of stings yes i would agree with that full full heartedly so in the spirit of expanding our field of interpretation let's talk about the other characters outside of shinji because that's where the movie really, really works. Yeah. This, the good thing about this movie, the best thing, is it's, it does take this like sobering view of like the remaining characters besides Shinji and go like, okay, we weren't fair to them. Except for Ray. Ray is still fucking weird and kind of useless. Just being spook Ray all constantly. She's just like pure weird, whole movie pure vessel for the occult shit. Right. Well, she does one, she makes one choice and it is in the context of the show. I think interesting. It is where her plot arc has been leading, which is that when Gendo is like, Oh, fuse with me, Ray. So we can, you know, I can be with Yui again. And she says, no, I'm not your doll. I'm my own, like basically saying I'm my own person. I make my own choices. There's your, there's your feminist Evangelion moment. Like there it goes. Here you go. I'm not your doll. Rip your fucking arm off. And like, all right, now I'm going to go become God. Goodbye. Which is also, you know, her breaking the glasses. It's something that's set up. It's a rule of three over the course of the show into the movie. You know, you have Ray two protecting the glasses, Ray three initially trying to break them and crying and not knowing why. And then she, Ray three finally does break the glasses and end of Eva. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a rejection of Gendo and it's a rejection of Gendo's belief that he could control Ray. And it's the only real, it's the first and only time we ever see Ray acting against Gendo's wishes. And Ray three. Yeah, Ray three. And it's, it's taken this many iterations of Ray to get to the one that can do that. So that's, that's really all there is to Ray's character. Otherwise, she's, you know, a force of immense psychedelic power and very little else in the movie. But what did, let's talk about the people who get there to get their druthers. Want to do the smaller ones first? I, I think we should talk about the bridge crew for a bit. Before we do the bridge crew, I think well, the movie does so good by the bridge crew. Yeah. Let's do the bridge crew. And then here's, here's where I think we should hit it. In. Let's do the bridge crew. Let's do Ritsko. Not a lot going on, but what's going on is dope. Let's do Misato. Lot to unpack there. And then last to, to me, this movie is about is like his him being like, sorry for what I did to Oscar. So, but let's start with the bridge crew because the bridge crew get it, get it, baby. Yes. So we haven't spent a lot of time with them as a group in a while. Pretty much the only times that they've shown up in the last leg of the show is just to comment on the action while it's happening. And there's there's definitely a lot of that here too. But what's cool is that how each of them have a different perspective and are offering a different interpretation of the events. Like Maya is the pacifist who is not prepared to kill other humans and is not prepared to fight in order to live. Shirigu is toting a submachine gun and is all about that action. <laughs> it seems like up know? until the end, because he's like his last his he at the end, he's more frightened than anybody, which again, that's a piece of critique. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Hugo is kind of the middle ground where he's trying to be explain away explain rationally what is going on like they mentioned the budget cuts which i think is kind of it might be like a kind of a clever meta reference of its own saying like oh zele cut our budget which is why we don't have any anti-terrorism weaponry and there's you know <laughs> this kind of narrative about ava having its budget cut 
Um, and another moment of like, it's like they were planning this the whole time. And like every time someone makes like a reference, I'm like, no shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another, actually, I, I do want to briefly talk about that, which is one of the things I love about the first chunk of this movie is how everyone calls the shots of the movie right before they happen. Right. There's this, this like pattern that's set up where everyone's like, oh, well, if they're hacking in, they're probably going to do this thing. And then they immediately do that thing. They immediately invade. Like, oh, if they're invading, why wouldn't they just drop an N2 mine? They drop an N2 mine. And the whole thing, it just lends to this sense of inevitability that all of this has been laid out in front of the characters and that all of them have no power to actually prevent what has been planned from taking place. This is always going to happen. Um, it's set, you know, in the way that the show talks about it, it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's all written in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's all according to Zele's plan. And it has this like eschatological effect where it's like time in the show was always moving towards this point. Instrumentality was inevitable. And that's really fucking cool. <laughs> it's really creepy and really, really cool. But then, you know, to your point about what happens to the bridge crew at the very end, they all get to see a vision first of Ray and then of, you know, who they desire most essentially to usher them into the ecstasy of instrumentality, you know? And, you know, Hugo gets finally gets to like, you know, be with Masato briefly. And Maya has the, like, I love you senpai moment with um, Ritsko. We should talk about Maya's moment. Like now Maya canonically queer now, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Let's there. Let's undo some of the queer erasure here. Maya, Maya likes wants some some uh, wants some Ritzko action, and like it's interesting that like she gets like the best kill because it's like her vision like embraces her from behind and types "I need you" right on the keyboard, and then she finally turns around and is like, "Oh, thank God, I'm here with Ritzko." Up, <laughs> oh, souped. Right. But Shigeru, on the other hand, gets only rays, endless rays. <laughs> and he, and he's, he does not want that. He's like, nope, don't want. No, he desires nothing. He's like the, you know, he's the stereotypical, like, actual nihilistic metalhead that they've basically portrayed him to be throughout the show, you know? And he gets greeted with a screaming laughter of rays rushing down in on him, you know, the least metal death you can imagine in its own way. Since they all die at the same time, let's here's something that sort of like threw me this time. Do you Fiyutsuki's Ray turns into Yui. I didn't really get from the show the first time that maybe he'd been crushing on Yui the whole time. I didn't really get that. But the but the the way he dies sort of implies it. What do you what's your take on that? I think it's like something that if it didn't end this way, I never would think about it. Um, right. But in the con, like knowing that this is where it ends again, it all is leading here. The end is inevitable. The end is predetermined. Knowing that the way that I would interpret like his episode of the show, it's all kind of hinted at but never explained like his relationship to gendo is kind of one of jealousy one of like gendo taking yui away from him in some way even if it's never like a sexual relationship i think there is some sense uh, unrequited desire there and it's it even plays into i think the fact that he goes along with the instrumentality plan 
I think is in some way an expression of dedication to Yui after she's gone, you know? In the, in the same way that like Gendo's refusal to hand unit one over is the same thing. Yes. Yeah, precisely. A few other things just while we're on the topic of the rays showing up, they show up to everyone. They show up to Masato before the the bomb goes off that splits her in half uh, and kills her briefly. And it's weird because this is before instrumentality has started, right? Like this is a a ray apparition that has shown up before instrumentality begins. Which so why why is that there? Is it the same ray apparition that appears to Shinji in the first episode? Ding ding ding! Yes, <laughs> because because instrumentality is inevitable. It will always begin. And right. Shinji showing up in Tokyo 3 is the beginning of the process. And so th- the ray that he sees is the same ray that all of these characters are seeing at the end of the at the end of time, you know? Like it's inevitable. And it shows up again in the final sequence. There's a ray hovering over the ocean of blood. Like it's a really ominous note to leave on. It's like, what if all of this is inevitable? What if you cannot change who you are? But yeah, I think the Maya death in particular is really great because it sort of lays out what makes this attractive, why someone would want instrumentality to happen. Because it's all about just someone saying to you, I need you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's it's that is what it means to like fill the hole in the human heart is to have that recognition and receive it back. The Hegelian recognition. Yes, precisely. Right. Would we want to move on and talk about Ritzko briefly? Yeah, let's because I've always liked Ritzko. Maybe now as I'm re- maybe the most complicated character in the show. Certainly the most deeply conflicted, but also doesn't really express it. But she's she's got the most like at cross purposes, right? Like her foil is her best friend. She's bad at making friends. It's obvious she desperately wants friends. She wants she's she's loyal to her mother, dedicated to her mother, who she also sort of despises. And in the end, like she protects Caspar from from being taken over by its by its clones, right? And like she has a moment where she like pets the brain box where her mom's brain is, and she's like, I'm here for you, mom. And her mom throws her under the bus. And she gets fucking murked. You know, it, it's, I kind of feel bad. Like her, like, I guess we're sort of like in, in, inclined to see her as a monster for killing all the Ray clones. But at the same time, like part of me asked, like, why didn't you do this sooner? If like, you knew what was going to happen. Right. It's the thing that makes her, you're right. In that she's constantly working cross purposes in that she is both believes in the project. He, she believes in what nerve is doing, but on the same level knows that it's wrong. Right. And that's because she believes what it's doing because she, like everyone else, is alone and in pain. And that is what leads to human inst- the human instrumentality project is the desire to no longer feel that pain. So, of course, it's it's it tears her apart what she's doing. And I think it's useful to think of like her destroying the Ray clones. I like that she describes it as an act of property destruction, you know? And it's it all is like in resentment with Gendo. It's saying like, fuck you for having these clones that, you know, aren't real humans. They don't have their own will. And she destroys them because she recognizes herself in them. She recognizes herself as a tool 
of Gendo's. And in doing so, and in destroying the other tools, it's like, you know, saying, no, I matter. I matter. Pay attention to me instead, you know? And it doesn't work out for her. She bet on the wrong horse. Like, you don't want to, to <laughs> seek recognition from Gendo. It's not, it, there's nothing there. He's an empty husk. She's, she's a failed Ray. She's, she's Ray that, that can't soon enough in, in her life make the I'm not your doll decision. She wants to be Gendo's doll because then at least she'd, but she doesn't understand that that won't solve her problem. You called her like an incel earlier and I didn't think about that, but like outside of her relationship with Gendo, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that's like part of like what makes the idea of instrumentality so appealing to her. Poor Roots go. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a shame that it had to happen that way, but it's the only way it could have happened. Like she, I feel like one of the things about this show is the characters that claim to have the biggest like control over themselves. The ones that comport themselves with the most control over their lives end up being the ones that fall apart the most, you know, her and Gendo, her and Gendo. And I mean, do, do we now move on to Masato as well? I mean, do we, do you put Masato in the same category there? Like episode 25 kind of talks about the, you know, kind of personal private life split that she has or the, the professional and private life split that she has rather um, and sort of shows that th the professional self that she shows is like a front and a f is essentially a, a false sense of self. She's, she's in a weird position in this movie. Uh, what did you, what do you make of Masato's whole arc in end of Eva? I think she's like integrated Finally, like during this movie, I think like, and your visual cue for that is there she is doing, she's not good with computers, but there she is hacking the Magi, doing a decent job while drinking inside HQ. And she's like, this is, this is like me, like fail daughter self and also me super professional. I'm a bad bitch and you know itself at once. And so like, I think this movie starts with like, maybe because of the Kaoru situation from like episode 24, she's like just finally like begun to integrate into herself and be like, yup, I can do it. She's the, she does the most to stop instrumentality of anybody else besides Asuka. There's a sense that she's like carrying on like Kaji's mission. Like she's taken that burden upon herself and is sort of, now is in charge you know she no longer needs like this like surrogate father figure to do it to like lead her to where she needs to go she now has like possesses that sort of agency within herself mm -hmm. and she gets her she gets her last action hero moment <laughs> yeah that <laughs> that is a very funny action sequence to me right there's like the three commandos that are there about to kill shinji and masato rushes in running in a straight line and they just shake the frame to make it look like she's moving, but she's not, she's just running in a straight line at them and shooting them with a pistol while they have like machine guns. And she she's takes... wearing a mini skirt <laughs> running and takes out all three of them. No problem. Like high kicks one of them into the wall. And then like, you know, has her like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like action moment, like nothing personal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, isn't that like exactly what they were about to say to Shinji before they shot him in the fucking head? Nothing personal, kid. And right, then she exactly. like takes like a nothing personal bang. She's like, okay, I am now super Misato. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the pep talk that she gives Shinji is great. 
It's like, that's exactly what needs to be said. It's, I think that's the closest resemblance to the original ending that you get in these is the message that she's trying to leave with Shinji is the message that episode 26 is trying to leave with the viewer. Like, yeah, you're going to fuck up. You're going to make mistakes, but it's like how you respond to that and how you just continue to move through the world that defines who you are. And, and she's like, get your closure. Do it, boy. Do your thing. Go save everybody. Go go be with Asuka if you want. Go forth and it's going to be okay. But if you stay here and don't do anything, there's nothing good for you. And and like and you need to know that. And like that's a hard it's a hard thing for 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 people to hear if you've had failure to launch, if you've like been stuck in an abusive relationship, if you've lots of people who can like relate to Shinji, like turtling in his own emotions right there. That's right. Which makes the kiss so much fucking weirder. <laughs> yeah. It's in line with a lot of the stuff that's happened with her throughout the show. Like there's that sequence where she, he, she attempts to like hold Shinji's hand after Ray two dies. And she questions her own motivations about why did I do that? Is it just that like all I think that I can offer this kid is like physical intimacy and it's kind of wrapped up in her own complicated relationship to her sexuality, which is what episode 25 kind of goes in depth about. She knows she's dying at this moment, right? Like she's not going to survive and she took one in like the lung. Yeah. Yeah. She's fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you make of why Masato, a grown woman, essentially, I think, 30 years old at the time of the movie. Our kisses, age. Yeah, our age. Yeah. Kisses, kisses a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's multiple ways that you could that you could peel that onion. And the, the cynical way is, is, is that this is just like the opening sequence and just like the last sequence. Another kind of way of Ano signaling to the fans like, oh, you, you liked the weird, like, psychosexual power dynamic between Misato and Shinji. You want some of that? Here, let me give you some. Do you like it? Is that what you want? Smoke Doesn't it make you pack. feel fucking weird? Yeah, smoke the whole pack. The one way is to perceive it is that's a smoke the whole pack moment. I love Misato so much, I'm not really willing to do that. I keep coming back to like the episode with her and uh, the falling bomb angel, whose name I am bad at pronouncing, so I keep I try to avoid it. The big but, eye in the sky. Eye in the sky, baby. You know, in that moment, like, we, we, we see that, like, with her, like, being willing to, like, buy them, like, food, but not doing it well. She's, like, trying to find some way to, like, give the kids something to look forward to, something to motivate them to survive. I think I see that sequence as her being like, well, he's a teenage boy. He likes Bonin, probably give him something to try to live for even if it's an empty promise that's so astute because in that sa- in that episode you remember like after she's just like yeah we'll go out for steak and oscar and shinji are like who the fuck wants to go out and eat steak like this is like what a millennial like what is this like what is her problem like why does she think that this is what we would want and they sort of see that what she's trying to give them is not there's a disconnect and you're right, like, Masato is wrong that, like, in trying to motivate Shinji through sex appeal, 
because that's not what he wants. And it's a misunderstanding between the two of them, but it's a well-intentioned misunderstanding, I suppose. And that's why, like, the the part of that whole sequence that really just fucks me up is Shinji on the elevator afterward, like, breaking down in tears. It, like, really hurts <laughs> to watch. And he's because, got the cross. Mm-hmm. He's got the St. George's cross necklace. And, like, it, something that we, I don't know if I think we missed quite talking about at the end, but even before you see that he's with Asuka, the first thing he's done since coming back to Earth is made Misato a grave. And so, like, I think you really do see, like, her as, like, the one light in his life. The only person who really does want what's best for him. And that's such a beautiful mirroring because Masato's father gave Masato the cross as he was dying and sending Masato off in, like, the, uh, like, basically the entry plug during Second Impact. And so it's in the same way that, like, Shinji is in the process of becoming his father and something he doesn't want this entire show, Misato is like, oh, I hate my dad, I hate my dad, I hate my dad, but I love my dad, I need my dad, becomes her father at the end of the show, you know? She's not capable of becoming Shinji's mother, which is what she wants, but she is capable of becoming the best part of her father. Yes, exactly, yeah. So it makes it weird, but, like, it, I think that, like, it's a great arc for her. It, even if it's kind of wiggity. Like, I, I'm not willing to... There's some people who are going to come up to this and be like, yep, 30 year old woman with like, this is like sort of like an assaulting type thing. And Masato like, is canceled. <laughs> Masato is canceled. The Masato is over party. party. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to have a Masato is over party personally, but if you want to have one, I understand. Yeah. Look, man, we're in the middle of having an Ava's over party. We don't need to have a, you know, a side party at the same time, but who we should have a party for. This whole movie is a party for one person, I think. I'm going to raise the glass. Cheers. Cheers. To motherfucking Asuka. <laughs> Pouring one out. I stand this mighty queen. And the best thing about this movie is it gives her such a fucking triumphant last act. I can't even. I need to collect myself. <laughs> Earlier in this podcast, we said that the Shinji versus Zeruel fight is the best fight in the series. That might be true. But number two with a bullet slash tied for number one, everything involving Asuka in Unit 2 in this movie is phenomenal. In- immensely satisfying. And as like a fan of her character, like I think it's earned. What do you think? It's awesome. It's the sickest shit. Um, (laughs) It's like one, I don't even compare it to the series because the form is just different. Like none of the fight scenes in the show, in the show have the level of resources that this movie does. So the shit that happens in this fight scene just couldn't happen in the show. And so I, I don't even think it's like fair to compare it. The minute that it really becomes like the best shit in the universe to me is like obviously like the big cross blast and hurl holding up the the tanker, which is like a great like callback to the very beginning of like the first time we see Asuka in action. Right. But to me, it's like when she's on land fighting the helicopters and she does the reverse uh, like spin kick to heel strike the one behind (laughs) her. And it's like, oh, that's a move. 
Like that's not just some like anime shit. Like that's a like an actual fucking kick. Like they from that point on you realize like oh they're they're choreographing this. This is like too like detailed combat in a way that the show doesn't even get close to on this kind of scale. And it just gets better. Like I love the mass produced Avas as villains. I think they're so gnarly looking and so evil and you just like hate them the minute that you see them. And let's talk about this. Let's un- let's unpack the mass produced Avas cuz what's interesting is they like they're really toyetic and they're really popular. They have a weird habit of showing up as like the Ava reference in other movies. Like there's like a series of like American films where like there's blink if you'll miss it Evangelion toy cameos and it's always one of the MP Avas. <laughs> yeah, oh that's a, that's kind of perfect, isn't it? Like they're mass produced literally, you know. Right. It's sort of it's witty in its own way. And they're like so cartoonishly overpowered. Like they've got wings They've got like mouths and teeth, weirdly no eyes, which like says something about like the blindness of of them. Like the fact that like Asuka has four eyes, Shinji has two, Rei has one. These have none. They've like they're, there's they're like inhuman in a way the other Avas aren't. They've got like the the sick double blade weapons that like that's what a reveal when it's like no nope, you're dead. And it's like oh spear of longinus, fuck yeah yeah yeah. yeah. How was I supposed to know? No one saw that coming. It's not even clear how that works, uh, but there it is. They like when they come out of the helicarriers, like they have they have like carriers too, but the other Evangelians have this like mechanical way of dropping. They like sort of like ooze upside down like bats out of the fucking plane carriers. So fucking weird. And the them moving in unison, it's like vultures. Like that's kind of the image that we get is like these like circling vultures over the corpse of nerve, you know? I think they're also such a great foil to Asuka in particular. Because they're dummy plugs. So they're all Ray clones. Her her entire arc is her being like, fuck Ray. Ray just does what she's told. Ray's a doll. I hate her. And then her final enemy in the series is literal doll versions of Ray, you know, yeah. that can only follow orders. That have no faces. You don't see the rays inside the pl- like you you can blink and you'll miss it because there's only the one shot of the dummy plug getting screwed in. But it's like you know that it's it's they've shown it in the sh- in the series. They're like, oh, okay, they're all dummy plugs, which is why it just makes it so fucking. She fights them. so so well she's so resourceful that's why it makes it so painful when she loses well let's first set up the stakes of this conflict a bit more because she begins the movie basically catatonic she begins the movie catatonic this is just after her suicide attempt at the end of the series and she's down underwater in unit two and what i what i love is that she figures it all out that her mother is in the Evangelion and is the AT field that protects her. She figures it out so quickly compared to Shinji, who's had so many more opportunities to figure this out, to get it. And like, yeah, she gets it instantly. And it it is maybe the only good thing that an Ava has done for its pilot ever is this moment where one has saved Shinji's life multiple times. Um, You know what I mean? Because right. we, we all know where that's going because we've seen the end of this movie. <laughs> but right. 
it is well, Shinji's the Antichrist. Psychologically, Asuka finally realizing that her mother did love her and having that reflected in the Evangelion itself is the best thing psychologically that an Ava has done for its pilot in the entire story, in my opinion. You're right. I agree completely. And it's and it's woven in perfectly well with like the scenes of Asuka breaking down. In this in the series, they become kind of repetitive because they always like fall back on the same motif of like baby Asuka trying to run to see her mom and her mom's dead and her being like the thing shows is like please don't stop being my mom please please love me please care for me i need you and you're not there and like the absence of her mother is her deepest wound and the way that it happens with like her mom like i think these are like some of the only lines of dialogue her mom has in the show is her, her mom being like I love you. I'm not going to let you die. The way that it like starts at a whisper and like the volume slowly gets turned up just makes perfect sense. Goosebumps. 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 And then she gets her cross blast and she's like, oh, I realize now something happened to my mother. It wasn't my mother's fault. She was always here. I didn't know it. No one explained it to me. I had to figure it out. And it was very soft and I had to listen right. And listening's hard. I wasn't ready to listen before then. And when she's ready to listen, it's like, oh, the gears are clicking. She's like, oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm the best. <laughs> and she, it's not even just that, like, she's, she's no longer faking it till she can make it. She believes it because it's true. And... The like it is it is the pure like Kobe Bryant Mamba mentality shit that she gets going in this final sequence, which is like I can kill them all myself. Shinji's not going to be able to help me. I can do this. Give me the fucking ball. And She's like ninety of them, twenty seconds each, on it, easy, and just starts. <laughs> and she kills the first mass-produced Ava in like a second, and goes out of her way to take more time to fuck it up. Right. <laughs> like, Oh, it's so great. It's so full of her. It's like the, the her combat in this in this fight scene is an expression of her desire to live. And at every point she's fighting back death. She's fighting back uh, the lack of control against like, you know, these mass produced corporatized demonic forces that are closing in on her and she's saying no fuck you i'm me i can do this i can do this myself i can i can establish myself in the world because i deserve to live and it's fucking rad <laughs> it's so good but again it, which is why it makes the finale of the fight scene hurt but it does i don't feel like the fight scene does her i don't feel like it does her a disservice until the very end, she's saying, I will kill you. I will live. Like, she's fighting for her life the entire time. And that is more than can be said of fucking Shinji Ikari. That's for sure. And it, that's what makes her the, the hero of this story. Yeah. She's, she's the only one of the pilots that figures it out. She successfully self-actualizes. And she gets... It doesn't work because her Evangelion's half-fucking-gone. But, like, she does get her reactivated from the dead 400% sync moment. The, the thing that Shinji did against Zeruel that made that fight seem so good. They give it to her and then, like, cut out the bottom of it. Right. It wasn't meant to be, but the fact that she reaches that point 
already makes it a victory. I agree completely. I mean, here's my read. Here's my leftist read of Asuka losing against the mass-produced Evangelions. Is like, it, I think the point that that sequence is trying to make is that, like, yes, you can be a fully actualized person. You can make no mistakes, and you can still fail because the institutions have a monopoly on violence. Like, you don't have a spear of longinus. It's not going to work for you. Your, your Evangelion can't, like, zombify rise from the dead because it has infinite power. Theirs do. You know, like, it's just... And that's why she's red, and they're all black and white with no face. They're, it's pure corporate thinking on their part. She's an artist, but one artist can't defeat an institution by itself. Even if it's perfect. Mm -hmm. You need other people. Right. I think, and that's why I think I see Anno in, in her. Like, I see, like, at the end of that fight scene, that's the, his feeling when he was making episodes 24 and 20, 25 and 26. Yes, yes. I 100% agree. Asuka gets two other big scenes in this movie. Right. Um, after that. One is the deeply deeply upsetting sequence where it's her and shinji in the kitchen something the about kitchen. the kitchen something about the way it's animated like really really rubs me wrong um like the slight fisheye lensiness yeah of it. it's it's really demented it's it's there's something just like off about the whole thing but she's right she's right in that scene she calls Shinji out entirely on his bullshit and on all of his neuroses, his desperate need of other people. The idea that Shinji loves Asuka for Asuka is bullshit. And she sees it as bullshit. And what I like is like the coffee pot falling over is like, it's a flash of something that we see in the show that we never have context for, you know, it's like the, like Kaji's dead fight. This is like a reliving of that fight scene or that argument between the two characters that we see played out over a longer bigger idea she doesn't mention kaji once in this movie and it makes her so much better yes yes you're right because like she no longer needs to pretend that that's what she wants she she has herself and then there's the finale the domestic violence thing yeah okay is is hard yeah because and and that's that's what makes the kitchen scene tough is like her her call out of shinji is totally correct and like her as in life, because you're an independent woman in a room alone with a guy, like your reward for correctness is direct is domestic violence. Yeah. Well read, very upsetting. It's part of a, a real, like th this is like true black pilled Shinji, this whole sequence, like the sandbox memory, which I think has other allegorical meanings similar to the ones that we we're describing of building up the nerve HQ destroying it out of frustration and anger because you feel abandoned and then tearfully putting it back together again. It's basically what Anno is doing, but it's also what the fandom is doing is it's saying, Oh, look at this thing that we have now. It's now I feel like I've been betrayed by the people who gave it to me. So I'm going to destroy it. Like, and that's what Shinji does. Like, Oh, I can't have Asuka. So I'm going to kill her. And it is the look on his face is like fucking terrifying during that sequence. And it grounds the absurdity of the of the spectacle of what's happening in the world at that point, like all of the crosses sweeping over the earth as mankind dies in instrumentality ecstasy. 
we understand that as a reflection of the more lived and human violence that Shinji is inflicting on Asuka at that moment. Right. And that leads us to the final scene of the movie, which I know that we touched on it before. Yeah, we touched on it before in its like meta sense, but I want to briefly talk about it. Taking out all of the Asuka as Ano stuff and the Shinji as the bad fandom stuff. What makes that scene so powerful to me is that, again, if you view the movie as Asuka being correct, as Asuka having made the breakthrough that Shinji cannot yet, she does the one thing that is beautiful. She, seeing someone who can only respond with violence, reaches out and says, I care, basically. Touches his face. It's this moment of rejecting violence and saying instead, no, you're an idiot. Like, you think this is the only way to connect with other people, but there's this other way. And if you think this is the only way is through this violent conquest, um, then you're disgusting. More nihilist power fantasy. Right. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. <laughs> yeah. I, I read the movie as, as her being right. I don't know what the read is if Shinji's right. Like, I don't know what just like my one problem with code is like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that that would be his first reaction to her. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that is being said there and I think like having the Ray apparition there kind of proves it is like Shinji has not fundamentally changed by rejecting instrumentality. That's the first step. That's the easy step. The harder thing to do is then to live a good life. And, you know, Ray says it while they're in the the pool of LCL. She says, like, you know, your fear of others, your fear of of being alone will come back. Like, that's not gone away. You will still be that version of yourself in this new world. And him choking Asuka is that, is that the the fact that he has not changed. And she says, no, you're disgusting. This is pathetic. And becoming unpathetic is the the mission that is left by the end of this movie. That's the next thing that needs to be done. And that's something that the show can't do for you. The movie cannot do that for you. You have to do that yourself. That's a great read. There's a scene right before that happens where, like, Shinji confronts Kaoru, who, like, and, and like, Kaoru's presence in this movie is, like, very vague. If there is, like, a weakness of this movie, I think it doesn't reckon with the importance of Kaoru very much. But he does see like Ray and Kaoru in his like in his like ecstatic visions during instrumentality. And he, he does sort of ask, like, what are you people? Which is a good question. And Kaoru says something like, we're like we're like the hope. We're the 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 possibility of a hopeful future for mankind is weirdly enough. That's what we are. And like in order to have that man needs to overcome its violence toward itself is like a thing they more or less basically say, which is powerful after you've seen the the Zele commandos flamethrowering people for no reason, having like multiple nerve like admins basically fall to their knees and be like, don't shoot. I'm unarmed. I surrender and just getting bullets in the head anyway. Right. So I think that, I think that works. And I guess one read of the end is that like the minute there's two people, the first thing one person's going to do is react with violence. Right. It's the master slave dialectic to go back to Hegel, you know, Hegel. Yeah. It's like, you're not me. 
therefore you remind me of not me so i must control you you know i must destroy you and asuka cuts all that away and says no you're you're pathetic like you you thinking this gives you power makes you pathetic so it's it's not a cathartic ending no evangelion avoids catharsis it gives it to you and then it rejects it in the same sentiment in the same film it says you wanted violence you wanted spectacle bam giant ray murdering all of humanity awful body horror ray faces exploding out of mass-produced avas everything we're gonna give it to you but we're weird also, sex shit yeah um, all sorts of like just vaginas everywhere you know yeah the retreat into the womb you know that's like the the big idea here and then it says like that's not good enough you you need to see the ugly morning after consequences you know of of the catharsis that you seek i would like to just quickly because we didn't talk about it in death and rebirth talk about the music of these two movies uh, and how it's stupendous and how it's stupid am i right yes yeah, it's I mean, great am I right? it's really really great um everyone knows the song that takes place during if you've seen the movie and if you're a fan of ava come or todd the song that plays during instrumentality is like kind of famous in its own right so during death and rebirth it's this you know band practice this like string quartet practice and the piece that they end on that they are all rehearsing at the end of the movie is pachelbel's canon in d pachelbel's canon in d is like the corny classical music piece it is like if you remember like one of the earliest like big hits on youtube was a kid playing pachelbel's canon on d and electric guitar it's like it is the the chord progression that takes place you know the yeah everyone knows this that chord progression shows up everywhere like there's that group axis of awesome that did the like basically live mashup where they proved that every single pop song is secretly pocketbills canon and d what i realized is that by rehearsing how to play pocketbills canon and d the characters are actually rehearsing how to play com Seuss or todd which begins as a riff on the pocketbill canon and d chord progression so it is following that same standard like bog standard pop chord progression while the world is ending but that's not all that Calm Seuss or Todd does. It also has a second half where it basically becomes Hey Jude by the Beatles. Yeah. And there's there's some like delicious kind of like textural irony of like this big happy sing-along while everyone in humanity is collapsing into Tang. But I also like that if you look at the lyrics to Hey Jude, it's basically like a me- it's practically a message to Shinji. It's like it's this song about saying to a sad kid like, hey, you don't have to be sad forever. You can make something beautiful. You can, you know, turn that sad, you can turn a sad, like a, a sad song and make it better. You know, all of those ideas, like let people under your skin. That's like all of those ideas in Hey Jude are now applicable to Evangelion through this really clever use of the Hey Jude sound in the song Kamsu Sertan. It's really cool. There's a reason that song is like so integral to the fandom people have like done a lot of interesting things with that song there's um there's memes about that song uh <laughs> people say the world is ending but com or todd isn't playing what gives <laughs> i, I want to talk about if i can't be yours 
Oh, is that the, the like the interlude song in the middle? Right. So like here's something we didn't talk about in the plot exchange, but like the movie ends right before instrumentality begins and you get the ending credits. Plus like a thank you note from Hideki Ono in the middle of the movie, like between quote unquote episode 25 and quote unquote episode 26. And the song that's playing is, is uh, if I can't be yours. And it's, if you remember earlier in the show, we explained that if you're watching the Netflix version, this won't happen, but the original and theme to the series is fly me to the moon. Uh, and multiple members of, of the, the staff singing a bossa Nova version of, of fly me to the moon. And if I can't be yours is a, is a bossa Nova ballad about like unrequited love. fits perfectly well into like, it's a good like externalization of what we're meant for Shinji to be feeling maybe toward Asuka at that point. Just a great fucking pop song. It's it's a variation on a melody that shows up during the Masato death scene too. That da na na na, which is I think is a lot of ways associated with Masato throughout the show. Basically, anytime things are going bad, like that melody kind of crops up, and it sort of like highlights the that same idea, the idea of like we cannot have the things that we want. I think it's a cool tune. I. I'll admit that like watching the movie multiple times has made it. So I'm always just like, okay, yeah, here's the, the mid movie credits. I need to just... let me skip the credits. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't skip the credits. You get something, I guess to go back that we didn't talk about is there's another great musical thing that happens not in the movie, but in episode 26 that I forgot to talk about. And so I guess I'm just going to use this opportunity to do that now at the end of the series during the good instrumentality, I guess during the congratulations sequence, they reinterpolate the main theme song, cruel angels thesis as like an 80s style, soft pop rock tune. Yeah. It's all like piano and acoustic guitar. Basically it's, and, and some there's, there's some bass pops in there. If you mm-hmm, listen, mm-hmm. it's dope. It's great. It's a fucking bop. Where's Phil Collins? <laughs> Bring him the fuck in. Yeah, no, it, what I love about it is it's the only time that, cruel angels thesis ever gets brought into the reality of the show it's the only time that that music ever happens during the show itself Mm -hmm. and to me the the part that like i'm I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it is like when it cuts down to just the piano at the very end over the like the black and white dialogue and like and to all the children congratulations with it's like oh just like breaks my heart every time it's so powerful in Um, the feels yeah, man. Um, man, I'm loath to close. I I've been in my feelings about a lot of things. I've I've been in my feelings about like End of Eva in particular, in 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 part because like again, like I hate to just make everything about COVID, but like we're, we're, like it feels like we're living through a kind of apocalypse and an apocalypse that like separates people, that like atomizes the individual. It, it makes it hard for people to connect to one another. It's an, it's an, it's an anti-instrumentality apocalypse that we have. And so like being able to connect with like you about this at this time is, I think one of the things that's kind of kept me on the level. Not that I'm entirely on the level. Cause I'm not. None of us are right now, man. It's all good. Well, I don't know. I'd like to be, I'd, I'd like to be, I'd like to be better than I am. 
which I think is maybe, maybe that's the attitude that like Evangelion's trying to get you to. I think it maybe like the whole show is trying like to get you to like, I can, I can get on, get on the upward swing. If I want, if I try, even if it hurts, you know? So, so doing this with you has been, has been, I, I think really good for me. I'm really sad right now. Um, because there's no more Ava left to talk about. That's not, that's okay. So that's not, it's not, that's not it's entirely not really true. true, but you know what I mean? And you know, as I, the, as I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, like maybe, well, we might figure out another way to keep this going because this has been an important thing for me too. It's been a structuring element and a structuralist period of life, but moreover, it's about, cause it's not just about like the TV show. Like clearly if you've listened all the way to this point, like, you know that we're talking about ourselves as much as anything else. Like, and it's been really powerful to open up to another person about this sort of shit and have a, a medium to do it with. And so I'm really grateful to have you on the other side of this phone call the way that I have for the last 16 episodes of this podcast. It's, it's really meant a lot to me too. It's really good to hear that. So much of life, even when you're with someone else feels like screaming into the void, especially now, like with like the alienation of, of the internet and all these other things. It's nice to be heard. You know, it's nice to have neither you nor I like live alone. And so it's like good. Like I, I need to have someone besides who I live with to interact with. And we just like out of fairness to them, I think if, if it's not always the most convenient thing in a way, I think it's, it's just slightly healthier. So, and like, it's, it's cool that like, obviously like this, this series has this ability to like resonate with people on a deep level. I think particularly if you first seen it when you're young, but I don't know. I think it's possible to see this when you're an older person for the first time and, and have it kind of entwine itself with you in the way that it has for me. But like rewatching all this is just like underlined, like how much of like my thinking and like my, my imaginative imagery has been a reflection of this. And people's individual like inner psyche is this weird black box that like you can't with language, you can even only sort of access it. And with art, you can even only sort of access it. And you need like a synthesis of the two to get like a decent idea of like what someone else's like inner inner zone look like, you know? Like it's, it's, it, it's, it's cool. Like now having gone, gone on this journey with you, like knowing that like, yeah, that's, and that's probably, even though we didn't know it when we first met part of why we got along maybe. Yeah. It's, it's something if you're the kind of person that this show had a big effect on, it's not like just liking something cause it's cool. Bonding over the show with another person. And this is maybe, maybe Hidekiana won't like to hear this, but. When I find someone else that this show has really touched, it means that they've gone through this same process, you know, and that uh, it, it just how to describe this in a way that doesn't feel corny. Like, I hope that everyone else 
now listening to this, um, having now gone through the journey of this show with us, knows that they're not alone either. You know? Um, and that that sounds corny because this is just a podcast about a TV show. Like, But underlying all of this is something just about what it means to be human, um, what it means to put yourself out there in the world and to, you know, we've put this message in a bottle and sent it out into the world without really knowing how it's going to be received. Like we've re we've recorded all of this without knowing how anyone's going to receive this podcast. And it's all in the hope of connecting with someone else on the other side of that absolute terror gap, you know? Yeah. The void. The void. The AT field. I didn't even think of that when we started doing this, but you're not wrong at all. And that's just all it is. It's it's us trying to connect with each other and in doing so, connect with you. And so I've got no fan service for you. I've got no jokes. There's no fan um, service left. Also, like, here's your whole, this is your whole movie. But like, did you really want more fan service? This is the most fan service we can give you. We showed you everyone's boobs. <laughs> So it's not about fan service, ultimately. It's about sharing a moment with another person and collectively realizing that we're formed by our relationships. I am who I am in part because I am friends with Joseph. I am who I am in part because I'm friends with Ian. And now we're a part of your life too, whoever's out there listening, and you're a part of our life. And... And thank you. For, and thank you for that. Also. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It means the fucking world to me. If you've decided to listen to all of this, if you guys really want. Un, <laughs> unlike the end of Evangelion, I'm willing to come back. Um, if you want, we'll leave that to you to decide. But until then. And to all the children. Congratulations.